Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. I'll be talking with Julian Zelizer, who's the author of the book. I hope that you really enjoy this interview that I did with Julian. Welcome back to the podcast again. I'll be talking to the author today of The uh, Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. Julian Zelzer uh, is the author, and and Julian's with us today. Julian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Before we get to your very interesting book, why don't you just tell us just a little bit about yourself, your affiliations, where you are now, where you've been in the past. Well, I'm a professor of history and uh, public policy here at Princeton University. I've also taught before at Boston University and uh, SUNY Albany. And I also write a weekly column for CNN on all things political, where I try to put today's events in some kind of historical context. Yeah, and I, I can't think of a book that, um, I mean, as, as you read it, and, and we're writing, you're writing about now 50 years ago or so, uh, that relates so much to what's happening today. Um, let's talk about your book. Um, this is mainly a book about Johnson. Uh, President Johnson, but you begin with the the stalled legislative work of President Kennedy. So why did Kennedy fail to pass most of his domestic agenda? Let's just start with Kennedy. Well, you know, usually people, when they write about Kennedy or think about him, uh, they tend to focus on Kennedy in terms of domestic policy. They look at uh, his lack of interest in domestic policy or some of his weaknesses uh, in terms of Congress. Um, But what interested me most in the Kennedy chapter is the difficulties of Congress at that time. Uh, This was a period until 1963 where Congress was accused of being obstructionist, uh, where Congress was dominated by a block of Southern Democrats and Midwestern Republicans who really blocked most liberal initiatives uh, from Medicare to civil rights from passing. And um, a lot of the chapter kind of turns the attention to Capitol Hill to understand a bit of what John Kennedy was up against. Yeah, and, and so so John, uh, Johnson comes to the presidency after Kennedy's assassination, and he doesn't wait long at all to push for an ambitious domestic agenda. But part of your argument is, is that Johnson saw his presidency as an extension of FDR's legacy, not Kennedy, not Kennedy's. So what drew Johnson to Roosevelt and to the New Deal? Well, he was a person who came of age in the 1930s. He was literally working in Washington, uh, first as an assistant to a member of Congress, uh, and then he'll get at a position running the Texas wing of the uh, National Youth Administration. And uh, then he's elected to Congress in 1937. So, so the years in which he's maturing, in which he's learning about politics, really are the 1930s. And When he starts as a member of the House of Representatives in the late 30s, it's a period where this conservative coalition that I mentioned is taking form and starting to cause problems for FDR. Uh, But Johnson already shows a little bit of what he's he's about 
uh, because he's a pretty loyal FDR person, which is rare in the South in the late 1930s. And so ultimately, he develops a genuine belief that the federal government has an important role to play, uh, certainly in minimizing economic inequality, but also dealing with some of the social issues uh, that were part of modern America. Now, as someone who studies interest groups in my own research, I found your description of the work of religious groups and civil rights organizations and unions in the push for the Great Society very interesting. I wonder if you could briefly talk a little bit about that side of it, the, the interest group politics side of it, the uh, organizations that were working uh, for and against Johnson during this time period. Yeah, this is something that really interested me in writing the book. Uh, when we talk about liberalism, in the 1960s, we tend to focus on the grassroots and we talk about civil rights activists and anti-war activists and other kind of liberal activists. But but what we often forget was that that liberals were incredibly organized in Washington uh, through various organizations, uh, the most important of which was the AFL-CIO, uh, the National Federation of Unions. Um, but there were also religious organizations in the early 1960s and groups like the Americans for Democratic Action, which were secular liberal groups, um, which really lobbied for liberal ideas. Uh, when it came to issues like health care for the aged, uh, these issues didn't just naturally gain traction in Washington. These organizations were counting votes. They were putting pressure on members of Congress. They were getting their message out to the media. So. It was really this universe of liberal interest groups that I think was quite formidable and very important to ultimately overcoming uh, these conservatives in Washington. During the battle over civil rights, I talk about how religious organizations were really important in pressuring Midwestern Republicans who otherwise were not scared of the African-American vote, uh, but they were very concerned about these groups influencing religious communities in states like Illinois or Wisconsin in 1964. Yeah, and, you know, sort of in an age before the, at least some of the growth of money in politics, it's a, it's a very different interest group community. And uh, that piece of it, I, I was really drawn to. Another one of the the, the myths, and maybe it's a myth, maybe it's not a myth, but one of the common perceptions that you, you um, take on in the book is one that, that Johnson deserves most, if not all, of the credit for the Great Society. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why we should also consider the prominent role pay, played by the changing Congress in how we think of, of the various programs that were passed during this time period. Why is Congress so important to consider as well? Yeah, Congress just has, uh, as, as most political scientists know, immense influence uh, on what happens in Washington. And usually we elect presidents, and this was the case with Kennedy and then the case with Johnson, who have great expectations about what they want to do. Uh, but they learn very quickly that the numbers on Capitol Hill matter. And if the votes aren't there, um, presidents do have the ability to twist arms and they can change some votes. Uh, but overall, if the numbers are stacked against you, there's limits on what a president can do. Um, this is why I start the book with Kennedy and why I start with the Congress that Kennedy faced. Um, the myth about Lyndon Johnson is that he was this political magician who could take a Congress stacked against him and twist arms and trade pork uh, and figure out exactly what made everyone tick to the point that his bills would float through. The iconic image of Johnson is the treatment where this six foot four president literally would hover over people trying to convince them uh, to do what they wanted. But but I, I don't think that really explains what happened. I think 
early in his presidency, this liberal movement with civil rights as the anchor, which was just placing immense pressure on Congress to change its ways on issues like civil rights, was more important than anything Johnson could do. And then after 1964, until 1966, Lyndon Johnson had huge Democratic majorities where the liberals uh, outweighed the conservative Southerners. And it was a Congress willing, eager and determined to pass legislation. And uh, the reason so much got through uh, was because the votes were there and conservatives realized they were going to lose if they held up progress. Many Republicans were scared about being uh, simply the party of no, especially after Barry Goldwater's defeat in 64. Uh, and that congressional configuration, in my mind, explains much more in terms of why we have this huge burst of social legislation than only focusing on Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. And, you know, the, the there was a move here, um, but there were certainly obstacles. And uh, I thought the anecdote you told about how the issue of of, of sex discrimination ended up in uh portions of the civil rights bill was was really interesting. So I wonder if you could re recount that just because these these little nuances of the book, I think, are very interesting. So how how did the the um, gender and sex become a part of the this legislation? Well, when the Civil Rights Act of 64 is in the House of Representatives, it's passed through committees and being debated on the floor. There's still opponents out there. Uh, a lot of the Southerners think because of all the civil rights activism, the chances of passing this bill are limited. Uh, that public opinion had changed clearly in the favor of this legislation. Uh, but Howard Smith, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, he's from Virginia. Uh, I'm sorry, the chairman of the House Rules Committee. He's from Virginia. He had been a chief opponent uh, of the civil rights legislation because he controlled the Rules Committee. Uh, he had a lot of sway uh, in Congress. That's the committee that determines the rules under which bills would be debated. So when the bill's on the floor... He, he tries, you know, really a desperation move, and he adds to the bill that it will basically prohibit gender discrimination, not simply racial discrimination. And he thought that if he put that in there, there was a chance it would be too much, that even many Democrats would oppose it, uh, some because they didn't believe the government should be in the business of uh, ending uh, gender discrimination, uh, and even some liberals believe that it was important for the government to protect female workers in ways in which they didn't protect uh, male workers, and this would cause problems. So he throws it in as a, what we call a, a poison pill, a poison amendment. Um, but in the end, the House went along with it and included it in the Civil Rights Act of 64. The Senate retained it, uh, and it became the basis for a lot of the policy that has prohibited gender discrimination. So it was an unintended consequence of a conservative uh, trying to stifle this bill for racial equality. Right. And leads to uh, perhaps a more ambitious and, and far reaching final legislation than, than anyone would have originally planned. You mentioned earlier this famous image uh, of Johnson and, and the, there's some great historical photos that you include in the book. I wonder if you could talk about how you and the publisher chose which images to include and, and maybe whether you have a favorite photo among the group. Maybe you could you know, describe it for us. Yeah. Uh, choosing the photos was actually a, a great part of the project. I had never had so many pictures in a book before, uh, but my publisher, my editor, Scott Moyers, really loved the book and believed in it. So I wanted to have uh, a great visual accompaniment to this. And so people could see who some of these characters were. 
And uh, selecting them is going through a million archives that exist from the Associated Press, and there's sites, something called Corbis, where you can actually go find old pictures. Um, but the process was more than just finding neat pictures. What my editor taught me and really pushed me to do was to tell the story of the book through the pictures, almost uh, like a trailer for a movie, and that if someone flipped through that, they could see uh, the evolution of of the story that I'm going to tell and, and try to understand through the photographs um, the trajectory of the narrative. I have a lot of favorite pictures. One of my favorites, which I just found at the very end of the whole process, I had a stock picture of Everett Dirksen, who was the Senate minority leader, whose name a nickname was the Wizard of Ooze because of his long-winded speeches. I had a standard portrait. But then someone at the Associated Press found this really neat picture of him in the Senate press galleries sitting cross-legged on a desk, uh, talking to reporters about what was going on with civil rights. And uh, it's just a great image of, of a senator interacting with the media uh, and a side of this very legendary figure that people don't often see. Um, and it was the kind of image I had never seen of him. And so I love that picture uh, because it takes a very familiar face and puts him in an unusual position. Um, the, the other picture I really like and I find uh, troubling and haunting, uh, the, in 1966, I write about this battle over an open housing bill uh, to end discrimination in the sale or rental of housing. And there's a backlash, a white backlash in many traditionally Democratic areas of the North against this bill. Uh, and I found this protest against the open housing bill um, uh, where you could see the kind of violence uh, that uh, that this legislation, this idea uh, elicited from some people who are throwing rocks and, and using violence to advance their cause. So those are two of the images I really uh, like having in the book. Yeah, it's, it's a great aspect of this book. I wish all books uh, on the subject could could have the same thing, but this is one that I think really does capture exactly what you describe. Let's talk a little bit about that backlash and try to bring this this topic up to today. You know, this am, this ambitious platform of legislation passes, um, but there is there is considerable backlash against it. And 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 yet uh, 50 years later, many of the most important parts of this are still intact, uh, if not expanded in, in their design. What do you attribute the, the lasting power of, of many of the great society programs? What why have they stuck with us despite, um, you know, efforts to to uh, restrain them in some ways and, and to change them what why are they still with us in such a powerful way well I think the most important is is very simple but uh, this was legislation this was an executive action and I do believe um, that the fight to win coalitional support for these ideas uh, and get the stamp of approval from both parties which happened on a lot of these bills and different sections of each party uh, really mattered and, uh, you know, bought in uh, members of the political world into protecting these programs. They were also programs that had pretty immediate benefits, and I think that was important. Uh, they were very direct. Medicare provided you with health insurance if you were over 65 very quickly. Civil rights instantly committed the Department of Justice to uh, desegregating the South, and voting rights did the same. And and again and again, uh, the Federal Education Act of 65 led to a rather quick infusion of money into the schools. And so uh, not only is this because it's bipartisan legislation, 
But because it worked very quickly, it got uh, underway very quickly, I think many constituents learned the benefits of these. And, and then people became uh, accustomed uh, to to these programs. And I do think it mattered that, that this was uh, generally a set of policies that came out uh, of a, a, a vibrant liberal movement of the period, uh, from the grassroots to the organizations, which helped to shape public opinion in the right way. Uh, so that when they passed, the public was prepared uh, at some level to embrace them. And all of this, uh, I think, has made a set of programs very durable, even when politics shifted to the right. Now, you've written in the past about Jimmy Carter, and you have this book out now mainly about uh, Lyndon Johnson. What, what's next from you? What are you taking up as your next project? I'm starting a book this year. I've started on Congress in the 1980s, and I'm writing a book about a big scandal that happens in uh, the late 1980s that forces the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, uh, to resign from his position and gives way to the rise of uh, then a young legislator, Newt Gingrich, uh, who will come to power as a result of this fight. Uh, so that's the story I'm working on. And then I'm co-authoring another book with a colleague of mine here at Princeton, uh, Kevin Cruz on America since 1974, which is uh, based on a course that we've been teaching for a while together. Yeah, well, I, I'm not I'm sure I'm not alone in saying we can't wait for these next pieces of your uh, uh, of what you work on. And until then, we have the fierce urgency of now Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society, published by Penguin Press this year. Julian Kelzer, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me.